Thanks for joining us for this archive of Teaching American History's Saturday webinar for September 12, 2020. The topic of today's program was, Why are the Constitution and Bill of Rights both necessary? We had some technical difficulties, and so our panelist, Gordon Lloyd, did not join us until about halfway through the program. However, Dr. Chris Burkett went ahead and answered teachers' questions up until that point. It ended up being a really fascinating program, touching on a wide variety of topics related to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the political and legal interplay between the two documents. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar. Um, sorry very much for the technical issues that we're having. Uh, we are trying to get uh, Dr. Lloyd logged in here so he can join us for this conversation, and hopefully that will happen soon. In the meantime, so as not to waste your time on a, on a Saturday morning, uh, I thought maybe we'd get started, and hopefully at some point Dr. Lloyd will be able to jump in with us. So, again, welcome to another webinar. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach political science and history uh, at Ashland University in our undergrad and graduate programs. And I'm also director of the Ashburg Scholar Program for undergraduates at Ashland University. So if you were here last time, you know that the theme of our webinars this fall is enduring questions about America. And we usually try to pull together uh, two thoughtful scholars uh, to have a conversation about these questions. And uh, Today, of course, we're having one guest, uh, Gordon Lloyd, hopefully <laughs> at some point, um, and in part uh, because uh, uh, Gordon and I have taught together uh, in our summer MAG program for oh, close to 15, 14, 15 years, something like that. Uh, we've taught the American founding together, uh, and we were not able to teach this last summer together, and so partly perhaps out of selfish reasons, I, I wanted to hear him talk about these things again. Uh, because he is, in my opinion, hands down, uh, the, the leading expert uh, on the Constitutional Convention and ratification and the Federalist Anti-Federalist debate. So I wanted to give uh, us a chance to take full advantage of Gordon's knowledge uh, in these things. And again, hopefully he'll be able to join us. Uh, as we're waiting um, and during the conversation, once it begins, please participate by submitting your questions uh, in the chat box feature. Uh, we'll try to get to as many as possible. And when you do submit those questions, please um, make sure you, you uh, uh, send that to everybody, to everyone, and don't send them to me privately. Uh, send them so that everybody can see in case others want to weigh in on them or, or, or Professor Lloyd might want to weigh in on them. Uh, let me remind you that in the next week, you'll receive an email with a link by which you can request a certificate of participation. Uh, for today's program, as well as a link to the archived audio and video from today. So uh, today, the question we're, we're focusing on is, uh, uh, were the Constitution and Bill of Rights really necessary? And uh, as I mentioned, I, I've invited Gordon Lloyd to, to come speak with us about this, uh, to come speak with us uh, about this question, which he has put a lot of thought into. Uh, Gordon Lloyd is uh, uh, retired uh, for uh, professor of Public Policy at Pepperdine and a longtime senior fellow and distinguished faculty at Ashbrook. And as I mentioned before, I've had the distinct pleasure of, of, of teaching with him for many years and, and learning as much as possible from him. So um, again, hopefully he will uh, be here as quickly as possible so that we can take advantage of his mind. Um, 
I'll just start by talking, and then I'd like for you to jump in with questions, and we'll we'll sort of uh, do it that way until he's able to, to join us. Um, when I, when the when when I'm asking the question, why are or were both the Constitution and Bill of Rights necessary? <laughs> Uh, most of you probably already recognize that this is just another way of kind of asking the question, who was right, the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists? On both questions, was the Constitution necessary? And you have the Federalist answer and the Anti-Federalist answer, and then were the, was the Bill of Rights necessary? And again, you have a Federalist answer and, a, and an Anti-Federalist answer. Um, so uh, I wanted to play through the arguments or kind of work through or think through some of the arguments that were made. Uh, both in favor of the new constitution and against ratification, um, and the same with the Bill of Rights. So, again, as we're waiting here, uh, I'll just sort of frame the conversation, as most of you know, by pointing out that in 1786, by 1786, um, it had become uh, uh, painfully clear to quite a few Americans and quite a few people that we think of as as, as founders and framers that the Articles of Confederation were not sufficient. They were not doing the sorts of things that, that they, these particular people who, by the way, were known as Federalists, uh, even before the Constitutional Convention, uh, that these Federalists thought that the government should be doing in terms of taking care of the general concerns of the, of the Union as a whole, um, in terms of self-defense, national security, uh, promoting uh, trade and commerce, regulating trade and commerce, among the states and with foreign nations. And so uh, even before uh, the Constitutional Convention in 1787, uh, under the Confederation Congress, you had uh, two, they weren't, I wouldn't call them parties, but you had two groups of, of, of uh, delegates in, in, in Congress who were known as either federal men or anti-federal men. And the federal men, as you might suspect, were the types, oh, let's, call out James Madison and uh, Alexander Hamilton and those sorts who were in favor of a much more vigorous and energetic uh, national government uh, who would do more things to, again, promote the, the security and the uh, prosperity of the United States as a whole. And there were anti-federal men. They were known as anti-federal men. Uh, these were the sorts who at the Constitutional Convention um, ended up being folks like uh, Roger Sherman um, uh, some of the, you know, bigger names who were arguing against the Virginia plan at the Constitutional Convention. Um, uh, um, Ellsworth, the Connecticut crew, right? Ellsworth and Sherman, uh, uh, Patterson and Brearley from New Jersey, uh, and, and quite a few others. So uh, going into the convention uh, in Philadelphia, there was a kind of consensus among the delegates that some changes needed to take place. That is, some kind of uh, improvements to the Articles of Confederation were necessary because they clearly were not sufficient in doing the sorts of things that most Americans expected them to do. The, the question immediately in Philadelphia in 1787, almost from the very beginning, as the debates began uh, around May 30th, the end of May into early June, uh, the first question that comes up is, well, does that mean we need to revise the Articles of Confederation, or do we need to scrap them entirely and come up with an entirely new plan of government? So that's the first big question that presents itself. And the answer to that comes in a kind of roundabout way, a long <laughs> three-and-a-half-month way, 
um, as, the, as, as the various plans are presented for consideration. So before we can answer the question, do we need to revise or do we need to scrap and begin from, from new, from, uh, from scratch, um, let's test out a couple of alternatives here. Uh, so at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, Madison and the Virginia delegation have come up with what's known as the Virginia Plan, which, um, which is pretty radically different, as most of you know, from the Articles of Confederation, and uh, in that it provides for uh, three separate branches of government. Under the Articles of Confederation, there was essentially one branch, and that was Congress, and it was unicameral. And the Madison's Virginia Plan proposed three separate branches, a judicial branch, executive branch, and a legislative branch, which were to be appointed in different ways and hold different terms of office. Some of these things were left blank um, to be filled in later. But uh, it, it, so the Virginia plan focused on changing the structure of the government that was under consideration. Um, so, uh, uh, almost immediately, uh, various other delegates at the convention um, started to make counter arguments uh, that it wasn't so much the structure of government that needed to be changed, but we needed to add a few additional powers to Congress to make that, uh, that governing body sufficient to do the things that were necessary um, in order to, again, you know, promote the interest of the union as a whole. So, so these are the sort of battle lines that are drawn going into the Constitutional Convention and at the very beginning. And this debate, really the question, the overarching question, uh, do we want to revise or do we want to scrap and start something kind of new, uh, takes place over about six, seven weeks, finally culminating in, in the Connecticut Compromise, as most of you are aware. So again, I am just um, you know, sort of putting some background information out there kind of stalling, <laughs> trying my best to stall until we find Gordon, who apparently I, I've just been informed is, is lost out there in, in, in the web somewhere. Um, <clears throat> so, so I propose that we start uh, thinking of some questions, uh, anything that you'd like to raise having to do with this first question, was the new constitution necessary? Or was it even new? Uh, or... or <laughs> Um, and, and then we can, uh, you know, think through this a little bit more uh, in the ways that you'd like to think about it and uh, or question it and then turn eventually, hopefully, to the Bill of Rights. So I see a question from Danita. Hi, Danita. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, I was taught, always been taught that the Bill of Rights were needed because the makeup of the states were so different. That being the main reason for the push for protection of individual rights. Has that thought changed? It's a great question. Um, and it's tied to the I mean, when you're asking the question, why was the Bill of Rights added? That that question, in a way, is if you read the arguments uh, during ratification, that question is inseparable in some ways from the question of ratification of the Constitution. So, as the Constitution is out there for debate after uh, the convention wraps up its business in September, as we all know, September 17th of 1787. And that convention, the Constitution is out there for inspection and review and debate and deliberation. Uh, the anti-federalists who align themselves against the Constitution tend to make 
arguments that fall under two broad headings. Um, this is going to be maybe a long answer to your question, Danita, but it's a great question. Uh, so the kinds of arguments that the anti-federalists are making, under one heading, they are saying, look, this new constitution gives way too much power and authority to the national government. Um, uh, the powers that are given are virtually unlimited. They really don't like the necessary and proper clause. They really don't like the unlimited tax power clause uh, as they read it. They, they really don't like the supremacy clause in the Constitution. Um, they don't like the way powers are separated. Some anti-federalists argue there's too much separation of powers. Others, interestingly enough, argue there's not enough. Um, so they have this long list of particular things about the Constitution that they don't like because they believe it will lead to ultimately uh, tyranny, the, the development of a kind of uh, despotism, uh, either under a sort of uh, monarchical despotism or a kind of aristocratic despotism under uh, a group of elites ruling in Congress. Um, and of course, running roughshod over the, the rights of the states, uh, as you point out here, Danita, in your question, right? So that's one kind of category, if you will, of, of, of arguments that anti-federalists make against ratification. Under the other category or heading, it's very simple. Give us a bill of rights, <laughs> right? Why is there no declaration of rights, especially a, a declaration or bill of rights that says two things? One, that there are certain rights uh, that, are, uh, uh, that belong to the people that ought to be inviolable by this new government, this national government, right? And two, a statement that there are certain powers that are reserved to the states uh, that this new national government shall never uh, you know, usurp or infringe upon. So, um, so it's interesting, from the, almost from the very beginning of the ratification debates in 1787-88, anti-federalists are saying, either fix all this laundry list of things we, specific things we don't like, uh, or give us a bill of rights. And I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, right? So as you know the story, as it, as, it, as it unfolds during ratification, of course, the Constitution is finally ratified by the ninth state. Uh, New Hampshire jumps in and beats a few others, New York and Virginia, and North Carolina and Rhode Island, uh, the ratification. And um, uh, it, is, it is ratified with the sort of soft consent, if you will, of a lot of anti-federalists with the expectation in their minds that once this new government meets in the first Congress, especially, that, uh, that there will be opportunities to discuss and possibly introduce amendments to the Constitution. So that was a, that was a, a kind of compromise principle, if you will, that was arrived at in the Massachusetts ratifying convention. The idea that the anti-federalists came to was, we'll ratify now and amend later. But there was this kind of understanding that amendments would be on the table at some point. So, so, th so that's a very long-winded answer. I'm not sure if that's even an answer. <laughs> that, uh, but, uh, but when the when the question comes up about, do we want a Bill of Rights in the first Congress? Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the fundamental argument was that um, one that it had kind of been not promised, but but you know we had been you know, 
there's a sort of gentleman's agreement that that a bill of rights, the possibility of bill of, of a bill of rights, would be would be debated in Congress. And the main reason was again to um, ensure that the rights of individuals and the powers of the various states uh, would be secured. And it tied to that, of course, is your uh, larger point, Anita. Part of the reason the states wanted those powers reserved to them was because of the diversity among the states in terms of their their you know their their uh, their, their economies, their their um, their uh, laws, their religion, uh, the kinds of religions you would find, uh, the, what Tocqueville calls the mores or the customs or habits of the various parts of the state. So there still is something to that that argument that the diversity of the states did have a role in in the calls for the creation of a Bill of Rights. So again, hopefully that addresses your question. It's a kind of a long answer, and I apologize for that. So. Kimberly, hi, Kimberly. Always great to hear from you. Does the importance of giving the states a legal standing in the new constitution still apply today? Uh, or is federalism still important? <laughs> Seems relevant for today, right? Um, and, and Kimberly mentions the 17th Amendment. State police powers and electoral college are becoming less and less important in the debate for preserving federalism, especially during uh, during emergencies. Um, um, is federalism still important? Well, I, I, it depends on who you're asking, of course, right? <laughs> federalism clearly was important to the framers, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> of the Constitution. Not used to doing so much talking. <coughs> but um, it was certainly important to the framers, and they thought that they had struck a kind of balance between giving the national government sufficient powers to do the things that it was tasked with doing, but also... Um, uh, in the Constitution itself, and then eventually through uh, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments uh, of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, reserving to the powers sufficient, uh, to the states sufficient powers to do the things that states were primarily responsible for. Today, federalism, as you know, federalism has, the idea of federalism has, in terms of its importance, has been um, up for debate more and more, um, especially after about the 1890s into the early 1900s, when there was a real push, if you if you studied the, the progressives, uh, <laughs> sorry to jump ahead to the progressives, but if you've studied the arguments of progressive thinkers and leaders, uh, they put forth very very strong powerful arguments uh, for the need to shift from reliance on the states as individual states to deal with the kinds of problems that 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 they were facing in the late 19th early 20th century, and a shift toward greater and greater regulation really uh by the federal government to to uh to deal with some of the issues that had arisen in the last late part of the, of the 19th century especially economic issues having to do with recessions um uh, unemployment uh, uh workplace safety and, and a lot of other things so since that time there has been a, a very strong debate in the minds of americans over whether or not we should still uh, whether or not federalism still matters. And I would add to that debate, and this also comes out of the progressive era, uh, a call for being more and more democratic as opposed to federal. And you mentioned the Electoral College in your question. Uh, that's, I think, where you see uh, in, the, in the debates over whether or not the Electoral College is still relevant, what you have there in a certain way, and if Gordon were here, I think he would, he would do this much more eloquently than I am, 
the debate over the, over the Electoral College is really a debate over whether we want to be federal or democratic, because the electoral process for president is a great example of how we have mixed a kind of partly national way of doing things and a partly federal way of doing things, right? Because electors meet on a state by state basis, uh, but then they, you know, uh, gather in their state in their states uh, to to cast their votes. But then those votes are cast off to uh, to Congress or sent off to Congress to be counted. And in cases of a tie or in cases in which a, a candidate does not receive a majority, it goes to a House vote. Uh, and when the House votes in contested elections, um, interestingly enough, they don't vote in a national way. They vote in a federal way. That is, each state delegation in the House of Representatives gets one vote, which would be federal. So, um, so the intent of the uh, this part of part of the intent of this complicated electoral process uh, by the framers was to was to uh, make the outcome of the presidential election more federal in nature. That is, somehow more widely dispersed among the whole territory of the United States, so as to provide a kind of general consensus among the states. Uh, more and more in the 20th century, as you're aware. Uh, there have been arguments against that for not being democratic enough because, of course, the president can win the electoral vote majority and not have a popular vote majority. So, so in many ways, the debate over the Electoral College and some of the other things that you mentioned are really questions of whether we want to be more federal in the sense that the founders originally understood it or more democratic in the sense that the progressives and post-progressive thinkers have considered those things. We'll get a great question. Sorry, I'm talking so much and rambling. Um, so a lot of great questions coming in. That's good. Let's keep that going. We'll just we'll keep going. I'm uh, I'm losing hope here for Gordon <laughs> with every passing minute. So if you came for Gordon, I apologize. You're you're, you're getting a you came for the uh, you came for the shrimp buffet and, and and you're getting pancakes here. Sorry or something like that. Um, uh, Let's see, looking at questions here. Um, oh, from David. Hey, David, I just sent you an email, by the way. Great to hear from you. Did Madison have a heavy hand in writing of both the Constitution and the Bill of Rights? That is a great question. Um, and the answer is yes, uh, but it may be in some surprising ways. Uh, Madison, of course, James Madison is known as the father of the Constitution. And part of the reason he's known as the father of the Constitution is because um, before the convention in Philadelphia, he, he probably more than any other individual uh, was responsible for pulling that convention together, for making that happen. Now, he had help from others, right? But, but Madison was sort of the prime mover uh, using his network of friends that he had acquired during his college days at the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton, his sort of continental network of friends. Uh, so Madison is known as the father of the Constitution because he's sort of the prime mover. He has also um, uh, has been calling for changes to the, to the Articles of Confederation in Congress. He's a member of the Confederation Congress for a number of years, so he is well known as a Federalist. He is uh, the primary author of the Virginia Plan, which is the first plan introduced at the convention. It's introduced at the end of May in Philadelphia. And, um, and so as, 
as the author, primary author of the, of the Virginia plan, which introduces the idea that we're not going to simply revise the articles, but incorporate these new things like, again, three distinct branches of government, uh, different terms in the various houses, different modes of election, uh, and, and a bicameral, leg excuse me, a bicameral legislature. These new structures, if you will, are in the new government proposed are in the Virginia plan. And those are largely there because Madison had written them in. Now, uh, <laughs> should Madison be considered the father of the Constitution when you look at the outcome of the convention? This is where it gets sort of interesting, I think, because um, one of the things, of many things that I learned from Gordon uh, <laughs> in teaching with the American founding course with him is that if you if you read Madison's debates that he that he that he you know wrote down and and, and recorded at the convention, um, and follow those very carefully, you start to notice all the ways in which Madison sort of loses some things that he thought were essential to this new constitution. So, the the anti-federal delegates to the convention immediately start countering to the proposals in the Virginia plan. And on many of those points, Madison sort of loses over his objections. And with the introduction of the New Jersey plan, which is which is considered very briefly, but then rejected, uh, but especially with the introduction of the compromise principle, what's known as the Connecticut compromise will be partly national, partly federal. What you get is sort of half of what Madison intended in the Virginia plan. That is, you get a House of Representatives that is sort of national in nature because the, the representatives are elected directly by the people. Um, <clears throat> it's it's a representation uh, of the states in the House is proportional based on population, and you get two-year terms, of course, right? Uh, but, but as a result of the Connecticut Compromise, you get something that Madison really, really did not want. And that is a Senate that uh, in which the senators are appointed by the state legislatures, and they uh, each state gets equal representation in the Senate, in the final constitution to two senators, right, two votes. And Madison was very, very strongly against those things, and he loses on that point in the Connecticut Compromise. In a certain way, the Connecticut, the Connecticut Compromise is a loss, if you want to think of it that way, for Madison. And he's not actually very happy about that for quite a while. But, but on the other hand, Madison is a big boy, and he understands that we have to arrive at some sort of consensus. And eventually, Madison makes tries to make lemonade out of out of out of the lemons that he sees in the Connecticut Compromise. So, is he, you know, how much of a hand did Madison have in writing the Constitution? About half of it, <laughs> I guess, is the short of it. I think a lot of credit goes to Roger Sherman. Who was who was friends with James Madison? They had a very deep respect for each other. Uh, Roger Sherman was very strongly responsible for re, for writing that part of the Constitution, uh, or for not writing but introducing the ideas that end up, you know, making the Constitution federal uh, as opposed to more national. So again, it's a long answer on the Bill of Rights. Interestingly enough, it's uh, it's kind of um, I don't know if it's flipped. But, but one of the remarkable things, one of the most remarkable uh, uh, things to me at the American, at, at, during the, 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 the founding, is that James Madison, who had such a, such a strong hand in writing and, 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 and getting this constitution through the convention, 
who, who played such an important role in defending it during the ratification debates, right? It's amazing to me that James Madison would then stand up in the first Congress. Remember, James Madison is elected to the House. He wanted to be in the Senate, but the Anti-Federalists still controlling Virginia uh, are opposed to Madison, and they appoint uh, James Monroe, I believe, instead. Um, <laughs> but James Madison in the House should stand up and propose changes to that very Constitution that he had been you know, worked to produce and had been defending during ratification. Madison is, uh, it says something about his ego or maybe his lack of ego or something like that, right? Uh, he could have said, no, this thing's perfect. It's my baby or something like that. But instead, Mad it's actually Madison who stands up in the first Congress and says, it is now time to consider amendments to the Constitution. And, and by the way, Madison had all along been saying he personally did not think that amendments were necessary. He thought that the Constitution, as it came out of the convention, would do a fine job, uh, uh, in fact, a better job than any what he called a parchment barrier or list of rights would do in, in securing the rights of individuals and the reserved powers of the states. But Madison nonetheless understood that, that a Bill of Rights was desired by many, as he called them, respectable citizens of the United States who were still sort of lukewarm toward the Constitution. And so he, he stood up and proposed 12 amendments, uh, or 19, I guess, uh, originally, um, which are eventually watered down to 12, and then you know 10 of which are passed to become the Bill of Rights. I, I just think that's a remarkable re uh, reflection on Madison's character, though, that uh, he, he had the uh, respect for the American people and even for the Anti-Federalists to the extent that he would honor this sort of understanding that a amendments would be considered and introduced into the first Congress. So, David, I hope that addresses your question. Again, it's a really long answer. I apologize. So, <laughs> I love that question, though. So, we call it a Bill of Rights from Don. But to what degree is it an effort to restrict, is an effort to restrict of the authority of the national government? Um, Again, this is a great question, and I think it, it, it depends on who you ask, even among the founders and framers. Um, if you ask the more anti-federal types um, at the time who are very strongly in favor, again, of this Bill of Rights, uh, their answer would be, it is clearly an attempt to draw hard and fast lines uh, with regard to you know, what the powers of, of the national government are, uh, to build a barrier, if you will, of um, a fence, a protective fence around the reserved powers of the states, um, or the sovereign powers of the states, they would actually say. Um, so from the Anti-Federalist perspective, the Bill of Rights was clearly an effort to restrict the authority of the national government. Um, the, the Federalists, on the other hand, including, I think, James Madison, uh, at the time the Bill of Rights were introduced, uh, would have said, um, that the Bill of Rights, if you if you think of it, it it really uh, how do we put this? It didn't add anything new in terms of restrictions on the powers of the of the national government that weren't already there or implied anyway in the original Constitution. So what James Madison I think believed was that what what the Bill of Rights actually did was it made explicit it stated in explicit terms. Uh, things that were already implied or implicit in the Constitution. So, for example, uh, 
the First Amendment, right? Congress shall shall make no law establishing a religion, uh, religious establishment, or infringing on the free exercise thereof and freedom of speech. <coughs> Excuse me. Madison would say, uh, and other Federalists would say that the, the national government had no power to do that, even without the Bill of Rights, because it was not uh, expressed, uh, uh, those powers were not listed or enumerated in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution uh, among the enumerated powers of Congress. So, so Federalists <laughs> argued that, um, that, um, that those powers were not given uh, originally by the Constitution. Now, the Anti-Federalists turned around, of course, and said, yeah, they're not, they're not, they're not, you know, given to Congress, but there is this little thing called the Necessary and Proper Clause at the end of Article One, Section Eight. Um, uh, Article One, Section uh, Seven. I apologize. And uh, and lots and lots of things can be done, <laughs> right? That that opens up all sorts of new powers that are that are in, that are in fact implied, uh, and though not enumerated in, in the Constitution. So. Um, so from the anti-federalist perspective, the Bill of Rights was absolutely an effort to restrict the authority of the national government along clearly expressed or stated lines. And, uh, and then again, you know, talk about the great irony, uh, not irony perhaps, but uh, just the amazing way in which American history unfolds. Uh, these same, some of the same federalists like James Madison and others, um, when the Alien and Sedition Acts are passed in the late 1790s, uh, a lot of people, including Madison, I think, are very grateful that we have a Bill of Rights <laughs> to hold up, which Madison, of course, does in the Virginia Resolutions uh, opposing the, uh, the, the Alien and Sedition Acts. It turns out that those explicit restrictions kind of came in handy to point out when government, in fact, had tried to uh, overreach its, its legitimate constitutional authority. So, so again, great question. Uh, yeah, Kim, can't you, Kimberly, can't you hear uh, Gordon? I wish he was here so much. I apologize again. Um, <coughs> Gordon, uh, in our uh, class, American founding class, was very fond of saying, you know, it's partly national, partly federal, right? And, and pointing all, out all the ways in which this complicated constitution of ours is, is partly national and partly federal. So, Ted, I'm just going through the questions systematically. These are such great questions. Uh, why do you think Madison went from Federalist when the Constitution was drafted and ratified to more of a state's rights position in his political career? Was it mostly his friendship with Jefferson? Now, that's a great question. I love this question <laughs> because I love it. because There's this scholarly view or scholarly, well, let me put it this way. Uh, I think scholars and historians have, I don't want to go so far as to say, created this myth that uh, the Jefferson was the master and that Madison was sort of the apprentice. You know, I used this analogy the other day that, that Jefferson was the, was, was, uh, was, you know, master Yoda and Matt and Madison was, you know, young Luke Skywalker. Okay. That's a terrible attempt at an analogy, but uh, there, I mean, there's something to that. Jefferson was the elder statesman. Madison was quite young when he struck up a friendship of Jefferson. But I, I think that that idea is overblown. By scholars, I think there are many, many examples that we can point to in which Madison taught Jefferson some things. Um, for example, on the question, the problem of majority faction—that that was a, a a problem and a solution 
to the problem of majority faction that Madison uh, came up with, that he had to repeatedly try to uh, explain to Thomas Jefferson why majority faction is such a problem and, 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 and therefore why this new constitution is going to be somehow better suited to deal with that problem. So there are many ways in which I think Madison has a reciprocal influence on Jefferson, just as much as Jefferson did on Madison. But the bulk of your question, Ted, I think is great. Uh, why did Madison switch, right? Uh, and so Madison's been accused, again, as being a flip-flopper. Madison believed he never changed his views. He, he believed he was consistent in his views throughout his political career. Um, if you look at the Madison of 1780. 788, what Madison believed was happening in, in, with ratification of the new constitution in a certain way, uh, one thing that was happening was we were bringing into a, a better balance the powers of the state governments and the national government. Under the articles, Madison repeatedly complained that the, that the states had you know, virtually all power and that Congress under the articles had virtually no power. I mean, it was powerless to do anything really without begging the states, right, for compliance. So in one sense, the Constitution, when it was first ratified, was bringing a kind of better balance between the powers of the national and the state government. Um, what Madison saw unfolding in the 1790s was attempts by a certain wing of the Federalists. And again, remember, Madison was a Federalist. In the early 1790s, there were only Federalists. Once the Anti-Federalists sort of dropped their, their Anti-Federalism, uh, virtually everybody became a Federalist in the early 1790s. But then again, almost immediately, two, if you will, factions or groups of Federalists started to emerge. There were sort of the Madisonian Federalists who thought that the Constitution very clearly laid out that proper balance of power. And then there were sort of the Hamiltonian Federalists, uh, among others, who started to interpret the Constitution much more broadly than Madison thought or Madison and others had intended to find new powers and new things that the national government could and should be doing. So these debates, of course, start over, you know, beginning with questions like assumption of the debt, uh, creation of a national bank, even foreign policy issues, right, in the war between France and Great Britain, start to really re reveal a split among Federalists to the point that, that Jefferson and Madison uh, abandoned the, the, the term Federalist in favor of Republican, right? Sometimes known as Democratic Republican or Jeffersonian Republican. But the Republican Party of the 1790s, of which Madison was one of the leaders, uh, in his mind was the true and uh, true position uh, with regard to the understanding of the separation of powers between the national government and the states. And in that, Madison believed that the that the Republican view was the original understanding and proper understanding of the Constitution on that question. So when you get it, again, you get to the end of the 1790s with the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts, that's the, you know, that's the smoking gun for Madison that, that, that he and the Republicans had not deviated from the original understanding of the Constitution, but that those other Federalists had deviated. They had gone down the path of as Jefferson and, and Madison like to call it, monocracy, right, in their interpretation of national power. So hope that helps. That was a great question. So, uh, Danita, Madison writes like a lawyer, puts much, puts much of specific 
legalese into the Bill of Rights, but it also feels like you need to bring it down to the simple man's needs. So again, this is an interesting question. Uh, some of you may know this. Uh, Madison, uh, when he went to um, college uh, in his late teens, uh, again, Madison went to the College of New Jersey. Uh, at, at that time, by the way, most Virginians, most sons of Virginian planters, you know, who could afford a, a college education went to the College of William and Mary, as you know, including Jefferson and others. Uh, Madison went to uh, New Jersey, where he met a lot of people from around the country, uh, from various states, which I think gave Madison a little more continental view of things, if you will. That is, he thought outside of the Virginia box, if you will. Um, and, and, and he met several friends there, one of whom was uh, William Bradford of Pennsylvania. And um, Madison wrote a number of uh, great letters to Bradford, if you're interested in looking them up. Uh, when he was right out of college, Madison tried his hand at, at law and uh, uh, started studying law and he thought maybe he'd practice law and he very quickly gave it up. And he wrote this great letter to Bradford explaining why he was not cut out to be a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> despite the fact that he does write like a lawyer, you're absolutely right to do that in many of the things that he writes. It has a tendency to be very technical and precise and sometimes a little... Um, Oh, what's the word? Oh, a little, a little, you know, sleight of handish, if you will. Ah, Professor Lloyd, I see your your beautiful forehead. Can you hear me? You're muted. You have to unmute yourself. Can you un can you find the unmute button? Hey, there you go. How are you? I am absolutely terrific and ashamed of my incompetence. You know? <laughs> and, and after all those health things, I finally found what it was. I wasn't, I wasn't signed up back. Well, uh, that's whatever it is, I have to go through all of those. Uh, you know, it's, so sh it's such a shame we have five minutes. Do we have five minutes, 10 minutes? Do yes. we have half an hour? I think, I think we have about 20 minutes, actually. I would love, love to talk to you about this if you're still willing and able to do it with this interruption. I would love to, and I think a lot of the people who are here, by the way, Gordon, uh, almost everybody stuck around this whole time waiting to, to see you and hear you. So well, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, uh, no, I'm, and, uh, thank you for seeing me. All right, so... Um, so, Gordon, the question we're asking is, were both the Constitution and Bill of Rights necessary? And I've been sort of dancing around this a little bit. And, yeah. I, and I, I suggested that this is just another way of asking the question, who was right, the Federalists or Anti-Federalists? Is that, is that a way to approach this question? Ooh. How would you approach yeah, it? Well, it, it, well it, it, is a way, it is a way to approach the question. Um, but terms change and the dynamics change when you're in a fluid situation of a conversation. So I don't think it was the issue until near the end of the convention, but it did become an issue of Federalist, Anti-Federalist when we're at, when we're in ratification. The Bill of Rights is the lead um, question when it comes to 
should we or should we not ratify this constitution? Right. Are you still there? Let, 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 oh, sorry. Let, let me try something. No, 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 no. Let me try something. I've often been asked, what do you think would have made the constitution more perfect or the union or the structure of the union more perfect? Because even more perfect than more perfect, because the, the framers did not intend to have a perfect union, and they left on September the 17th, each with a, well, you know, I wish it could have been a little bit more, but you know what? This is, this is we can defend this and we can live under this and we can amend this if necessary. And I've been asked, well, what would you add? Well, I know what Madison would add, he would add the, he would add the, the, the veto that Congress could veto what the states wanted to do. And that was defeated. There is something about an anti-federalist victory. Sometimes we need to think about the anti-federalist disposition, which was at the convention in the first place. So that, so that a lot of what the anti-federalists wanted, small republic, limited federal government, were achieved. So Madison would have liked to have seen the, the sort of the, the veto of Congress over state legislation. I think what I would have liked to have seen, given your commentary, was that on September the 13th, when they were all going through now, um, September the 12th, Mason, Randolph, and Jerry are all concerned about whether this has gone too far, whether in fact we have, we now have the, the political equivalent of the congressional veto over state legislation by having the necessary and proper clause, the supremacy clause. Uh, aren't those ways of expressing a congressional veto or a judicial veto over state legislation. So it's interesting that when you get to about September the 12th, September the 13th, Jerry Randolph and Mason are trying to wring whatever last minute restraints they can have on the Constitution so that it respects rights rather than enhances power. Mason calls for a Bill of Rights. And Jerry supports him. And the vote is 5-5. Five, five. And you say, well, why is, it a, why, why is the vote 10? Well, the answer is Massachusetts in Madison is absent. Now, for Massachusetts to be absent means that one of the three delegates has to be absent. And uh, that would mean either either uh, uh, King or Gorham had to not be present because Jerry, Jerry wanted it. So it's fascinating. Why did Massachusetts, why was Massachusetts absent? So that made it 10 because Massachusetts was absent. But you said, well, what about the other? Well, New York was absent because it left early and Rhode Island never showed up. So we're talking about a 10 vote because of Massachusetts is a 5-5. Five, five. That comes as close as you could possibly come to having um, a dead heat. And, it, and the issue was Mason wanted to uh, have a preface to the Constitution with a Bill of Rights. Uh, preface the cut, right? That's what he wanted. 
Okay. And it lost 5-5. Five, five. One could say it won 5-5. Five, five. five is not a majority of 13. So, so it's a fail. So it's a, it failed. It failed. It, fail. so, right, so, so it failed. But in a certain sense, it didn't win. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> right? It didn't win. So this whole argument, what is fascinating for me is that if, if, if we had had a 6-5 vote in favor, a Bill of Rights would have prefaced the Constitution like all the state, like most of the state constitutions, and we wouldn't have an issue of the relationship between the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It's because of that defeat that then the anti-federalists pushed the absence of the Bill of Rights. Madison recognizes that it is at least prudent to have a Bill of Rights because it is traditional in, in, within the American scheme and it won't alter what they have done at the convention. So that's what he was looking for, uh, uh, something that wouldn't have altered. And actually, Mason's suggestion on September the 13th would not have altered the, anything. Yeah. So what happened after, in, in the first Congress, is Madison adopted Mason's approach, and Mason abandoned Mason's approach and went all haywire. <laughs> and he, rejected, he rejected the Bill of Rights which in, in, in the Virginia Convention, which he, Mason, was perfectly happy to have at the Constitutional Convention. But, but it's really fascinating. If you take a look at the Virginia vote, the Virginia vote was um, in, uh, darn light here with all the fires. I can't, I don't see. Um, Virginia vote was in favor. Okay. Wait a minute. Oh, Virginia voted against. The Virginia delegation voted against having a Bill of Rights preface the Constitution on September the on September the twelfth, just two days, three days or so before the convention. So, if for for Virginia to vote no, didn't want a Bill of Rights. I think, well, what's going on here? Mason wants a Bill of Rights. He's from Virginia. Randolph wants a bit of Bill of Rights. He's from Virginia. That's two. So, yeah. So who voted no? Madison voted no. And then also voted no would be um, uh, his, his, his buddy, whose name escapes me now, but it, it, his, his buddy who... Was always who was always then voted with him. That's two two. Oh, right, right. So for Virginia vote no, Washington must have voted. Yeah, and voted against the Bill of Rights. Wow, that's fascinating. Do you happen to have in front of you how how did do you know how Connecticut voted? I'm just curious. Connecticut, yeah, yeah. I'm guessing they voted yes, right? I don't think they really cared. No, they would. Uh, uh, yeah, they voted yes. New yeah. Hampshire, Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, yes, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. It's interesting that the three southern states, of, which, which have been causing so much trouble all this darn time about slavery, voted against having a Bill of Rights. And then Massachusetts, darn it, was absent. <laughs> and that's the only reason they were absent is that somebody went to the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> All it takes later on the, because, see, because they have to have three people there. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love talking about ideas, Chris. But one of the things I love working with you is we can get down and dirty in the boats. Right. And so much of that this depends on boats. Who is yeah. there and who is not there? Yeah. So I would say, somebody asked me, what do I think would have been it more perfect? Just getting Mason's thing. Because in the end, in the end, Madison adopts those kinds of things that would be consistent with the Constitution. And Mason goes haywire. Right. And, that, and, that the, the, and that instead, so what we've had in terms of American story is a Constitution which is power and a Bill of Rights which are the rights, and the two are potentially in conflict. And we get these you know, courses in constitutional law and all of that. And that some people would say, well, the Constitution is a Bill of Rights. Others would say, well, the Bill of Rights is a Constitution. And, and, and so I think a lot of that could have been avoided had that vote of 5-5 five, five been a bit, just a nudge one way or the other. And, it, and if it was, yes, it would have there you um, go. Okay. made it more difficult. It would have made it more difficult for Randolph, Jerry, and Mason not to sign. Yeah. So, Gordon, it's interesting. Um, and I, I didn't realize this until just now, that um, Mason wanted the Bill of Rights attached as a preamble, right? Yes. And Madison introduces amendments in the first Congress. He proposes that very same thing, right? That they're, well, they're pre, pre, prefixed to the Constitution of Bill of Rights. Yes. So that would have, I had considered how that would have Yes, changed. I mean, it is a complete accident. Yeah. Well, no, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, I mean it, is, it is more accidental than principle that the Bill of Rights comes at the end of the U.S. Constitution. If you look at the state constitutions, a Bill of Rights, sometimes called a Declaration of Rights, comes at the beginning as a sort of, here's who we are, a mission statement. This is that, and the whole purpose of a constitution, which just comes after, is to secure the rights which we've just articulated, both natural and, and, and traditional. Natural being right to conscience, traditional being uh, due process of law. And, those are, and in most state constitutions, it comes as a preface. Some state constitutions, the minority, decide that they're not making a Bill of Rights as a statement of purpose. But once we list powers in our constitution, we're going to list a limitation of powers. So there were two ways in which a Bill of Rights appeared in state constitutions. One is a preface, that's Virginia, and that is what Mason wanted, and he wrote the darn thing. Then there are others, like New York, which have a Bill of Rights as in the Constitution, in the state constitution itself, right after listing of powers. So, uh, Mason originally suggested, just let's have the Constitution Convention, let's have it as a preface. So he was going the Virginia way and knew exactly what to do, and he said, in a few moments, we could put this together. So he wasn't thinking of any brand new thing. He was thinking of, um, of, of something which was traditional to America. And that was his ground for saying this. Americans were used to this. And ultimately, 
through the ratification convention. Madison came around to saying, well, it, it, uh, that, that's fine. If it persuades people to adopt the Constitution, that's fine. And, you know, one day, you never know, we might need it. And it's good. And so Madison originally did both in the, in, in the, in the uh, first Congress. He did both methods. One, he wanted it as a preface, namely, put, uh, beef up the preamble to the Constitution to include as the purpose, instead of the six, simply the six purposes in the preamble that Gouverneur Morris had written, why don't we also put in there a natural right thing like the conscience, right to such and such, and, and, and beef up the preamble as a preface? And then what he decided was to follow the other method, which is having listed the powers of Congress, uh, interstate commerce, necessary and proper clause, and all of that. Why don't we then list the uh, things that Congress can't do? So habeas corpus, ex post facto laws. So what he wanted to do was, in effect, both methods, uh, both yeah. ideas that are coming in the state constitution. And that's what he presented to the first Congress. So, yes, a preface in the sense of beefing up the preamble, which, was, which is the preface to the Constitution, and then, and then restraints, adding restraints on the powers of Congress and, and, and so that um, you could present it as a whole. And he was willing to, to open it up and just redo it, sort of, sort of have like a, a, a second ratification and not have this. I mean, I think one of the difficulties of, a, of, of, of Amer the American story is this clash between the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And Hamilton at the beginning and Wilson at the beginning said, we don't need a Bill of Rights because the Constitution is a Bill of Rights which is a bit of a nonsensical argument, but no, never mind. But where are we today? If you ask young people today to talk about the Constitution, the first thing they talk about is the Bill of Rights. They don't talk about it. Um, they don't seem to care about the relationship between the Congress and the executive and the judiciary. They want to talk about rights. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, so it's, almost like the, it's almost like the Bill of Rights has become the Constitution. Whereas at the beginning, the Constitution was the Bill of Rights. And I think your whole story today, inviting people to consider, why, don't, why do we need the Constitution and the Bill of Rights instead of one or the other? Yeah, that's a great point. And reminds there's a question from Kimberly, which I think I, I want to raise here too. But before I do that, you're reminding me that, again, just to be clear uh, in my own mind, when Madison proposed a Bill of Rights in the first Congress, that was one of the, what did he introduce, 17 amendments? Was it uh, 17? Well, he, he, originally, he introduced 39 proposals. 39 proposals. One, right. one of them was to have a Bill of Rights at the beginning of the Constitution. That, 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 that is correct, to beef up the preamble. Right. The thing we think of today as the Bill of Rights those were individual proposals that Madison wanted to insert as limitations on power. He wanted to insert them in That's the correct. right place. And so in Article 1, Section 9, or, for example. Right. So, so 
So the way this played out, and this is really fascinating because I had not thought of it this way before, is that it, it, it the, the final way in which the Bill of Rights is added, right, tacked on at the end, yes, uh, at the at the urging of Roger Sherman, right, correct, <laughs> it correct. does kind of create a tension in the minds of people between where do you look to as the most authoritative, even though the amendment right. is part of the Constitution. They're thought of as somehow separate from the Constitution. And it yeah, it's, it's so funny to, to follow the uh, so the relationship between, as, as you and I have done in, in when we've been together working, which I've thoroughly enjoyed over the years, is that to see the relationship between Madison and Sherman. And Sherman is the only person who signed the Declaration, signed the Articles, signed the Constitution, ratified the Constitution, was in the first Congress for the Bill of Rights. The only person at the founding who followed that story through. And if we think that the real Sherman-Madison battle was only the June 6th speech, the role of the states, that which, which is completely true, it's huge. But the Madison Sherwin battle or disagreement or conversation went over to the first Congress, where Madison presented, as you've said, this this June eighth speech of, of shall we say an inclusive uh, document uh, and and so the question really is is if, are we are we the first Congress altering in some way? The work of the original founders have we become new founders, and Sherman said we should not, we should not alter the work of the original founders. So, Mr. Madison, no, you cannot add a Bill of Rights to the preamble. Mr. Madison, no, you cannot open up the Constitution and add in Article One, Section Nine. You cannot do those things. But those are the two traditional ways we've done a Bill of Rights. We have never tacked it on at the end. It's also been part of the story. Mr. Sherman said we cannot alter the role of the framers. And you can see Madison say, but I am the framer. <laughs> That's great. You know? and, yeah. so, and so Sherman won. Yeah. And, there, there's another great irony in that. The Sherman, you know, throughout the convention is also... At, at, at least during the first six weeks, as they're debating representation, is Sherman who doesn't want to deviate too much from what we have now, right? Yeah. But when it comes to a Bill of Rights, he's right. <laughs> so all out there. So. Sherman is not motivated too much by the Bill of Rights. As long as he's got the states equally represented in the Senate and he's got certain restraints on on, on the states, which he's won, by the way, he's which is why he can sign, which, which was the, fa- the, the, the funny point, which is that, that somehow Sherman was the person that was Madison's nemesis at the convention for at least half of it. And he signs the, the, the Constitution. Uh, Mason, who was Madison's friend at the beginning, and Randolph, who introduced Randolph, that don't sign. And that's a whole story in itself, but it has to do with this relationship between the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And um, Sherman, for example, would say, we don't need a Bill of Rights in the Constitution because there are already state Bill of Rights. Mason, strangely, said state Bill of Rights are not going to be good enough because of the 
uh, supremacy clause in the Constitution will give Congress all the power it needs, and, uh, which is in effect the equivalent of Madison's veto. So we need more restraints and more restraints written down. And Sherman is, is, is not particularly interested, as you pointed out in the vote, not particularly interested in that. He, he secured what needs to be secured. And so this Bill of Rights story is a story that also develops between Madison and Sherman in the first Congress. Sherman wins. And he's not too interested in the content. But the Senate, uh, what is, what, this is so, so, so interesting. You know, I, I, I just wish you and I could do a, a lot more on this. Anyway, Sherman, uh, the House approves of one of the most uh, controversial recommendations that Madison makes. One of the 39 is that, is that he takes it seriously. He's had this correspondence with Jefferson. And Jefferson's point is every government should have, the people deserve under their government, every government should have a Bill of Rights. And he lists that through this conversation with Madison what the three most important rights are. And the three most important rights are one, the natural right to conscience. Two, which is like an American right to um, freedom of the press. And the third one is a traditional English one, which is due process of law. On all three, says Jefferson, and Madison agrees with him, uh, it should be, you know, should be in there. In, in, in the, and so Madison takes that seriously. And one of his proposals, of his 39 proposals, is that these three, Conscience, press, which covers speech, and uh, trial by jury should not only be in there as a bill of rights to restrain the federal government, but if we are serious about what Jefferson says about all government, we should include it to restrain the states. And irony, that's his 14th proposal. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> you don't take a story about the Fourteenth Amendment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's his Fourteenth, and and that goes to the Senate, right? All all those proposals go to the Senate. The Senate defeats that one, so we don't get that in the final Bill of Rights, which are proposed to the states. But what which of course is bad, Madison's that's equivalent of is 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 um is, is, is Council of Revision again, vetoing state laws. Right? No, that, that's what led him to the convention in the first place. The states, under the, in the vice, his vices, the states are violating conscience, press, yeah. and, and the trial jury. Those are the three things that they're doing. So if we're really serious about this Bill of Rights thing, we should put those against the states also. And the Senate, which is the branch of the states, rejects it. Yeah. So a committee is created, a conference committee is created to iron out the differences between the, the Senate version and the House version. Because that 39 proposals have been, have been put in terms of 17 amendments um, because Sherman won't let it be put into the Constitution. So these 17 amendments go to the, go to the Senate 
and the Senate turns, turns around and says, here's 12. And the one they really cut out was this restriction on the states. So now that has, we have to reconcile a Senate version with a House version. And guess who's on the Reconciliation Committee? Sherman and Madison. <laughs> That's just too good. Guess who wins? Sherman. Sherman wins. It's wonderful. I yeah. love it. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, we, we've uh, kind of come to the end of our time, and I know some people have, may have, have to leave here, Gordon, but can you answer uh, one other quick sure, question? You know what? I will stay as long as you want me to. Fantastic. And you can cut this up and slice it up by, with, with <laughs> Jeremy's, uh, however, however you want it. I am just, I am just so embarrassed and, and sort of ashamed oh. that I wasn't there at the beginning. Jeremy said it was a technical problem. I, I agree. It's a technical problem, but it's also a problem that I have, wow. which is pressing the wrong button and doing this kinds of things. And it really is. But now that I'm on with you, I'm going to give you all the time you want. I'm, gr I'm grateful for all the time you've given. And I think a lot of uh, people joining us are as well. But on your last point, uh, Matt had asked earlier, uh, is there any significance to the order in which the amendments uh, we're get, you know, the ordering. Why do we, why is the first the first and the second the second? Do we know that? Yeah, we do. Kind of a technical question, but it's kind of no, 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 no. Yeah, 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 no, no. It's very good. Imagine. I don't know uh, the answer. What's that? I don't know the answer. <laughs> I want to know. Well, I could give you the answer. Uh, that, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, if you uh, let's go back to Madison's June the eighth speech. And imagine how he's talking. What he wants to do is to take the original Constitution and begin at the beginning. So he takes the Constitution. I got one right here. Here it is. Go to bedtime reading. Uh, he opened up the Constitution. He says, look, that's, here's where we begin. We begin at the beginning. And what I want to do is to add to the preamble, add some of the Declaration of Independence and the state prefaces to the preamble. And then let's go to Article 1, Section 1. And one of the things in Article 1, Section 1 and Section 2 deals with the pay of representatives, that they can set their own pay, but the judges and the executive have to be restrained. And Madison think, says, you know, I agree with the anti-federalist criticism. That's not right. The, the Congress should be restrained in its giving its own pay. So I think we'd like to make an alteration on that point. So let's continue. And we can say uh, in Article 1 or in you know, one of the anti-federalist criticisms is, how can you have a representative government for one for 30,000 people? You never know, one day it might get to one for 100,000. Or by the 21st century, it could get to be one for 600,000. How can you call us a representative government when you're, represent when <laughs> you're sharing the representative 
with so many other people. We should have in the Constitution more than a goal of one for 30,000, but we should make it sort of a requirement and that, and that we build into the Constitution a, a sort of a, a mechanism that as the population increases in the country, so too shall the number of representatives so that it becomes, it um, continues to at least aim for one, one for 30,000, if not guaranteed. And, and so, so that we keep that in mind as a, as a sort of an aim uh, that, that we could do. And then, and then maybe one day we could start. All right, so that's another suggestion. Those are the first two suggestions. Because he's just, I mean, three, first three suggestions. Add to the preamble, go to Article 1, do these two things with the census, uh, increasing the representatives, and and controlling their pay. And so then, what else do we need to do? So he gets to Article 1, Section 9, which is the restraints on Congress. And that's where he puts... Conscience, press, such and such. Congress cannot do. Congress cannot do all of those kinds of things. And, um, and so he said, "Well, what else?" Works through certain uh, Article Three, puts in some jury trials, uh, works his way down to the end of the Constitution, uh, and adds, uh, "Well, you know, those powers that are not granted are reserved to the people. We, we want to make that clear, and that the." Uh, and, and the Constitution is 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 supreme. So that's, that's my suggestion, says Mr. Madison. We'll begin at the beginning of the original Constitution, open it up, and make these amendments, changes. So it becomes one document. Sherwin, don't touch the work of the founders. So what do we do? Well, it have, it, so now, instead of including it, we have to extract those from the document because Sherman and the others won't let this happen. And so what happens is that someone there takes what Madison has done and, and so let, let's say, and he sends it over to the, to the Senate, the Senate sends back 12. The first one is going to be um, the census, one for 30,000. The second one is going to be, second amendment is going to be congressional pay. The third one is going to be right of conscience. So what happens is that the the numbering of the amendments follows the way which Madison had introduced the amendments, the the changes to the original constitution. So that really the first amendment as it comes to the people is the census. I see. That makes perfect sense. Are, are you following me? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So there is a rational rationale. So the rationale is that you take the Constitution, and, it's, and this would never happen. You never oh. have to ask the question, why is the First Amendment the First Amendment, if, if Madison had had his way. I see. That's fascinating. I had no idea. <laughs> That's great. So now, so now we have this story, is the framers... The framers wanted to have the First Amendment there at the first because it was it was first in their minds. Yeah, but it's a great yeah. story. But it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> it, it is true that Madison thought conscience was the number one of all, right. Right. and it's true that he wanted that. It is true that Jefferson wanted that. 
but and it's true that it is the first in their minds. Yeah. But it's <laughs> that's not that's not why it's actually there. They were no. working through the Constitution from exactly. beginning to end. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Huh. Well, that that's. I, I think the way to look at it is that is that when. When Madison is sitting down in the first Congress, Article One, Section Eight, is where the powers of Congress are listed, and Article One, Section Nine, are where the restraints on Congress are listed. Mm -hmm. So, if we're talking that we don't want Congress to get involved in conscience and speech and press, um, the the place we put it. Is Article One, Section Nine, because we've already had an Article One, Section Nine. Congress can't pass do habeas corpus, can't do ex post facto laws. So this is sort of like adding to the rights that the people have against Congress, which was deemed to be the most dangerous branch at that time. Right. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for that. I hope Matt, that, that was a great question. Thanks for asking that. Well, Gordon, um, we've, we've got to wrap this up. I, I really do okay. appreciate your, the time that you were able to give us. It turns out that you were, uh, as always, uh, thoughtful and uh, lively and uh, gave us a lot to think about. So it's great great to see you again. I really do appreciate it. And sorry again about whatever mix-ups were happening, but uh, I'm, I'm glad you could join us for the time that you that you were here. So Yeah, I think the next time we speak, you give me about a a, a, a two-hour lead time how to fix this and, <laughs> and give the mechanics at, at Ashbrook and, and elsewhere and poor Jeremy the opportunity to run Monica to work through things and, uh, and just sort of iron out the difficulties because I always enjoy speaking with you and I just enjoy our time together and um, it's wonderful and I'm just um, so let's, let's enjoy what, uh, what we've got and again, if anybody wants to write to me and if you want to set up another uh, session where we can have um, some time together, I'm more than willing to do it with you, Christopher. Thank you very much, Gordon. Appreciate that very much. So, yeah. And again, I, I can't recommend enough. Uh, I, did, I didn't mention this earlier, the websites that Gordon has put together. I know some of you are familiar with these already, but uh, at TAH.org. Uh, please check out the, the the websites Gordon has put together on the on the convention, uh, anti-federalist, federalists, uh, ratification, and the Bill of Rights. They were just I, I can't even begin to tell you how much information is there. You could play around with those sites for years and not find everything. <laughs> There's so much there, and and you know learn something every time you check it out. So if you haven't seen those, please follow up there, and you can find Dr. Lloyd's uh, contact information if you have thoughts on those websites. Uh, and I know you like to get feedback on those things too, or even suggestions for things. Oh, definitely. Some of my, some of the nice little stories that occur on the website that have been the result of, of uh, people writing in either because they, their great grandmother or great grandfather had some information or they, they're passing along some knowledge and it's, Wonderful to add some personal stories to the stories of the framers. It's great stuff. That's great. great. So again, thank you, Gordon, and thanks everybody for joining us. Thank, thanks okay. for great questions. And uh, our next Saturday webinar will be October third, and uh, we'll consider the question: What did slavery cause the Civil War? That should be mm -hmm. an easy question to answer. Mm. <laughs> well, I heard your grunt. All right, I'm, thanks. I'm for
I'm drooling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Hope to see you next month. Take care until then. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information about our free resources and programs for teachers of American history, civics, and government at TAH.org or teachingamericanhistory.org.